Welcome everyone back again to the Kind Mess podcast. Today, Mike and I are very excited to have uh, Dr. Catherine King on the show. Dr. Catherine King is a licensed psychologist from the state of Massachusetts in America, and she's joined us internationally today on the show, our first uh, overseas guest, which is very exciting. And uh, she has a a special interest in gerontology and... um, Uh, doing some research into death anxiety and using creative writing for reminiscence. All of these topics sound really fascinating. (laughs) And she's also the host of the Noble Mind podcast, a really brilliant podcast exploring similar concepts to what we explore on the show, but with uh, some very esteemed guests there, including uh, Mike Pringle as well. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Good to meet you, Jad, and and see you again, Mike. We're doing a podcast swap. <laughs> we are, we are. Look, you know, me casa su casa. I don't know how to say that in podcast <laughs> language. Um, Kate, it's it's yeah, delightful to have you on board. And look, this is a this is a question that I've had brewing in my mind. Um, I like to I like to start with a broad uh, concept. And, you know, we meander where we do from there. Kate, you have a broad clinical experience. You have a uh, quite a quite a advanced level of practice in Buddhism, which you also uh, teach is my understanding. Um, You've you've experienced a a lot of mindfulness practice, mindful self-compassion. Now, here's the question that I would frame to you. The world's a little cray cray. Society is tricky. <laughs> um, the pursuit of happiness is happiness something conceptually that might just be a little bit of an overreach for us these days, Kate King. <laughs> happiness is a high bar, <laughs> especially with the world being what it is. <laughs> It's funny you ask that, actually, because I've, I've actually had an experience at some point in my life where I recall realizing that happiness is too high a bar in terms of like a sustainable state of active enjoyment. Um, mm. And and I think, um, gosh, if I'm sort of circling back to where this all stood, um, well, maybe the cultural context, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in the US, like the cultural ideal is like a super gregarious, extroverted guy who's like, you know, shaking hands and making friends. And like, it's a very, almost like aggressively extroverted kind of ideal. There's like, like always like, like, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly right the tails wagging and like knocking cups over and just like (laughs) it's it's a really high standard and and it's sort of like imposed on us you know and I think even more like in more recent years I remember you know I'm not a parent but folks who are parents talking about their kids always being forced to do group work in the classroom and open concept floor plans at work and like all this stuff to that really sort of forces this certain way of being and um, so I think I kind of internalized some expectation around that. And at some point, you know, I don't even really know how the pieces all came together, but I was like, oh, okay, how about just like contentment? Like, <laughs> and even that like can be wiggly, like it's, it's not a steady state, but just something that's like not, it doesn't have to be this like activated is the word that comes to mind, like this energized 
like state. It's, you know, more of just like a equanimity type of a experience maybe. Um, but even that, I don't know, like <laughs> part of being human is suffering as you both know, and hence the name and mission of your show. So I also think that cultivating some equanimity with, you know, the muck and slime of life uh, is, is a useful practice as well. And we don't have to aspire to any great noble states of, <laughs> of well-being, um, but more some way of riding the wave, maybe like more of a process than an outcome kind of goal, you know, like mm. a way of being with the ups and downs of life versus trying to force some outcome of like, I'm always happy right? <laughs> or everything's always eight. <laughs> yes. Right? The sort of self-aggression you hear in my tone of voice. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think of sometimes the John Kabat-Zinn quote of the idea of you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf, um, yeah. which, which has been very helpful sort of a concept for me. Um, I, I think it's really interesting. This, this concept of happiness. I, I, I'm curious. I, I wonder if, you know, psychologically, biologically, if we're meant to be in this ec this ecstatic state of happiness all the time, <laughs> if we're even capable of maintaining that in that level of energy, um, I wonder do you do you have thoughts on where this message or how this message this 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 pursuit of happiness that's become in, in, encumbered upon us? I mean, what's what are your thoughts? Where's it coming from? you know, I'm getting the impression it might be the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but it just seems to me as I get older, it's becoming more of a thing. And now there's almost this anxiety. If you're not happy, you're like, oh no, I'm not happy. Yeah. What's, what's going on, Kate King? <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like maybe like a history of, of psychology person might be a, a better person to answer that question. Yeah. Um, but I, I do, I recall learning a little bit in my own history of psychology education about the ways in which like American psychology differs from, you know, sort of the broader history of ideas uh, and particularly the history of psychology and, and how it really became this pursuit of, of this like actively well state of happiness and um, fulfillment in all areas and a sort of aggressive pursuit that comes in some way out of um I don't know, like a, almost like a, I don't, like a manifest destiny attitude of just like, you know, we're going to conquer all and, you know, get all the goodies for ourselves and like achieve great things and make millions of dollars. And it just feels like a very, like in all life domains, very kind of like aggressively American sort of mindset. Um, obviously not everybody has that, but I think it has in some way spread into how we relate to our our own well-being. It's this thing to achieve. It's another domain to conquer, another area to master, you know, another thing to consume. It's kind of consumerist, you know, as well. It's sort of this like you buy the stuff, even if it's buy the self-help mm -hmm. books or buy the retreat or experience or whatever that's going to get me somewhere I'm not. I mean, we're so sold, you know, this deficit model of like we're broken as we are and we need something in the marketplace to fix us. Um yeah, that's some of my some of my thoughts on the matter. And that brings up another curiosity in me. How do you balance? So you said a deficit model, and I think that's that's kind of an important point to grab onto here. That mm -hmm. um, and and I don't want to be to come off as being um, critical 
of of certain medical practices, psychology, psychiatry. But there is a little Please, bit of... Please, by all means. You know, hey, all right. Well, here's what I... No. Um, it's, it's, there seems to be an inbuilt power dynamic there, a westernised sort of medical model based around the practitioner being the holder of the uh, avenues or the capacities, the cures for change. There seems to sometimes be a power, a slight power over instead of maybe a power with. And this mm-hmm. is certainly not across all... Um, clinicians, yeah. bearing in mind that I'm married to one, Whew. I think. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, all really just like a projection. <laughs> it's so annoying. No, no. Um, it's uh, uh, it's it's a it's a look. I'm punching well above my weight, Jad. I'll tell you that. He's, yeah. He still scratches his head. He's like, "How are you married to this wonderful person, mate?" Um, <laughs> the point that I was meandering to, clumsily. Mm-hmm. How do you offset your Buddhist practice with a Western sort of medical clinical approach? I'm super curious about that. Yeah, let me chew on that for a minute. I think that my journey as a psychologist has been one of indoctrination <laughs> and then what's the opposite of that when you get deprogrammed from a cult <laughs> in, in the self-administered cult deprogramming of yes. the sort of met- medical model of psychology because that is how people are taught in graduate programs at least here in the U.S. you know clinical psychology you know, one criticism that I would have as a discipline is that we have a tendency now to think of ourselves as like a medical subspecialty. And mm-hmm. there are some useful elements to that, you know, in terms of clarity of purpose, like having a goal and not just having someone show up five days a week until the end of time, and, you know, and, <laughs> and never really improve or heal or and not being held accountable for outcomes or the influence we've had on our clients and stuff. So there's some good things, some important good things about, about that model that I wouldn't want to throw away. Um, but there's a lot that's wrong with that, you know, that, that gets lost in terms of the sort of full humanity of people. If we just focus on symptom reduction, you know, okay, problem list, you know, symptom X, treatment Y, plug and play, (laughs) you know, I mean, we're sort of asking to be replaced with AI when we approach treatment that way, you know, Mm, and, mm, you know, mm. I think that bringing our full humanity and respecting the full humanity of our clients is really what makes it a real encounter. And I think a healing encounter. And so your your journey with Buddhism, though, how did that? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. How does that connect? Yeah, with your practice, (laughs) how did it, how did it? um, I guess the reason I'm curious is my own recreational Buddhist practice. I call (laughs) myself recreational because I don't shave my head and live in a cave. And, you know, I eat meat, naughty boy, has influenced me a lot in terms of you know, and I think I can't remember if we discussed it on your podcast, but yeah, my, my Buddhist practice sort of manifested in, in breaking up with a lot of stuff um, compassionately. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious, did this, yeah. How, how has it, how has that influenced your concept of self or professional practice or whatever? Yeah. Right. I think, I mean, if I, if I do the timeline, then I would say my, 
life as a Buddhist long predates my uh, engagement in psychotherapy or, you know, as a, being a mental health professional. So I got involved in Buddhism when I was in high school. I took refuge when I was 21 or 20, 22, maybe. Uh, and I didn't go to graduate school until I was 27, I think, and didn't finish school until my early 30s. So um, so I was kind of already on the sort of track of like bringing these into my life and my personal experience er earlier in my life. Uh, so then, you know, some people find their way into Buddhism through psychology and mindfulness, you know, mm -hmm. and so they're, they're like integrated from birth. But I've often thought of it as just sort of like a lot of mental health professionals have their own personal sort of spiritual practices. It doesn't have to be integrated into my work directly. Like I don't teach Buddhism to my clients unless somebody like specifically is interested or asks me a question because they've heard like something like this or read something where that's, you know, and they're interested or people find me through some avenue like this. Um, I think of it as something sort of personal about, about myself. That's just one of my identities that I carry with me into the room. That said, <laughs> <laughs> seeing the self as fragmentary and unreal, <laughs> I think is supportive of helping my clients explore and understand their selves and not to sort of reify or create the sort of solid self that they're trying to force themselves into. Mm. You know, just the sort of simple like turn of phrase people use of like being of two minds about, about something, right? Like I, I think this, and yet I think that, and I feel like it's a very small example, but when you think, well, you're of a lot more than two minds <laughs> about everything, you know, they're like, they're like, what is mind anyway? It just kind of creates a stance in the room that's not like, yeah, let's figure this out. Let's mm. find the one true right answer that will satisfy all yourselves. <laughs> you know, it just, I think it creates a, a more open stance for, for all of that complexity of the human experience. Certainly people can be that way and not be a Buddhist. But for me, I make that connection. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and also like, Hey, life is characterized by suffering. So like, we're not mm. going to get rid of that. And so I don't try to pretend that, that that's a psychotherapy goal, uh, which I think is something that sometimes people get tangled up in, um, mm. again, going back to what is happiness and what's, you know, what's, what's pursuable and attainable. Do you find that, um, a tricky concept to explore with your clients? Cause some people do come with the expectation, you know, we've, the expectation of, of yeah, finding happiness and that there's something wrong with them yeah. if they experience struggle and suffering. And, um, mm. and you're, you're right. Like, I think part of the, the, um, the, the reason this kind of toxic positivity is spread is it's very easy to sell. Like it's, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's appealing. Like we want to feel good. We want to feel yeah. better. How do you explore with your clients, the idea that, you know, that, that, suffering is is a part of life and and mm -hmm. um whilst we aim to minimize it and reduce it we don't get to to not have it at all right mm. yeah a few different roads one one road is thinking about the evolutionary basis you know as as i think mike you had sort of touched on a few minutes ago but just that like we're not necessarily wired to be happy Right. And the sort of general idea that like we the, those of our ancestors who have survived were pretty neurotic pe people, <laughs> 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 right? really yeah. concerned about danger, you know, so like our, our sort of evolutionary sort of heritage or inheritance, you know, has really been one of uh, of worry and struggle and fear that that's helped us survive. So we have that in our brains, like just at a very like animal level. Um, so 
if we don't retrain ourselves to see other things, our default is going to be like, what should I be afraid of now? <laughs> Where's the snake? Where's the bear? Like that tends to be the orientation that our default sort of starts us off with if we don't, again, kind of try to work on that. Um, so that's one direction that I think has been helpful for people. I had another thought, but now I'm losing it. Uh, <laughs> oh, I think finding meaning in suffering as well um, mm, can be helpful, uh, right? To explore like, well, you know, for instance, with grief, like we don't feel grief if we don't care, if we don't love, if something's not valuable or important to us, you know? So, and who wants a life without love or care or attachment, <laughs> you know? So so just as one simple example that that there's there's meaning in suffering to be found, there's growth and learning to be found in suffering. And also the suffering comes from somewhere that we wouldn't want to get rid of, right? It's interesting. We say this regularly on this podcast. Uh, once again, Thich Nhat Hanh just nailed it for me with the whole concept of just there's no mud, then yeah. there will be no lotus. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very yeah, interesting yeah. idea. But very curious in terms of, that question in therapeutic practice, because there are a lot of, there are a lot of sort of, I suppose, therapeutic adjacent products that are sort of on the market. We, we hear, and again, this is not a criticism. There's, there's wonderful elements of all of them. Um, but we hear, I don't know, an example in Australia is there's, there's a lot of quote unquote breath work stuff going on, which is, yeah. you know, that's great. Yeah. I'm a martial artist mm -hmm. for years. The first thing I learned was breathing. Mm -hmm. It is an interesting idea. I guess in Buddhist sort of language, there seems to be a lot of aversion going on, as in we much, much like Jad was suggesting, we seem to be suggested to as a society that no, 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 you don't have to have, you don't have to have suffering. You don't have to have pain. Swipe mm -hmm. your credit card here. Come and do this, this, uh, <laughs> this course, or um, I'm being cheeky, obviously, because my caffeine's kicking in, but <laughs> it's something that I'm noticing. And um, yes. mm -hmm. it's a, it's a very, very tricky landscape. We, the world is of interest to me at the moment in terms of, mm -hmm. I sometimes wonder, Kate, without sounding too, too dramatic, Without the skill sets that we talk about on this podcast that you've just brought up, that you talk about on, on your podcast, we're almost starting on the back foot in terms of how we experience the bumpy road. Mm -hmm. I wonder where you sit or if you have thoughts with the, again, just looking that there seems to be a lot of aversion towards suffering going on at the moment, which is, which is tricky. Right. And the aversion itself becomes suffering or is suffering as well. So then we've got layers upon layers where we're suffering about our suffering. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> In the absence of mindfulness, basic sort of mindfulness skills, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. we can become the attacker and the, the attacked and we can suffer mm -hmm. without an awareness of the causality, which I, I wonder, I, I sometimes think, does that, does that mean we lose our, our, I don't want to say power, our capacity? We love, we love speaking and compassionately prodding Buddhist con concepts on this podcast, but you are in fact possibly <laughs> the most qualified person to actually teach about it and, you know, not have <laughs> Jad and I butchering it each week. You said suffering over suffering. Super interesting. Mm -hmm. Can you can you talk a little more yeah. about that? 
Yeah, right. It's this Buddhist teaching about the second arrow, uh, where like the first arrow is the one that's like really hurts, right? And is potentially going to kill you. Second arrow is like, oh, like you do it to yourself kind of, right? So it's like, there's the pain and then the pain about the pain. And this could be about anything, you know, there's like the fear and then the fear about the fear or the worry about the fear or, and then you can have the, and the, then you can have the judgment that you're worrying about the fear, right? I mean, mm. our minds, it's like a Russian doll situation, <laughs> right? Mm. We can have so many layers of, of experience observing our own experience and, and like, they can all be like negative and unhelpful, right? Like, oh, then I'm sort of like critical of the fact that, that I'm judging the fact that I'm worrying about something I'm scared of. <laughs> it's like, oh, right. And then, yeah. So I don't know where I'm going with that, but suffering upon suffering. And there's the suffering that we inherently, so does people make a distinction between pain and suffering? Like pain is inherent to existence. Suffering is optional. I just don't always, you know, stick to that vocabulary only in this conversation. Um, but that can be a useful way of talking about things if you want to parse out the language a little bit more, you know, like pain is something, suffering is optional. That's a quote. I don't remember by who. <laughs> it's interesting. So, you know, in a nutshell, we're talking about the idea that we have, we have an event. Um, I, when, when I'm teaching mindfulness, I always go back to this event. Mm -hmm. I was young. I was think I was 19 or something. And I was at a, uh, family gathering of a, of a girlfriend at the time. And I was trying very hard to be socially, uh, integrated. And I was like, okay, what do these people talk about? Long story short, I asked a woman who was not pregnant when the child was due. Um, oh, you know, oh right, right. It's Textbook. even. It, I mean, that's right out of the rom com movies. Oh, I mean. dude. <laughs> this is when I really became aware of um, the suffering over the suffering, which I've loosely labeled as my inner George Costanza. So there was the event <laughs> and my Lord, the event was horrible. It was just like, please swallow me up. Could there be a yawning chasm that could open right now? Sinkhole, <laughs> please. On cue. <laughs> oh, oh Lord. Um, but of course, days, weeks, months. And, you know, mm. even when I think about it now, there's a part of yeah. my brain, I can notice heat in my skin. I can, I can start mm -hmm. to feel things. Things. Oh mm -hmm. boy, did I punish myself uh, over that event. And, and, and over, <laughs> over time, it probably became worse. I mean, in terms of a physiological response, in terms of a, uh, you know, an experience became worse than mm -hmm. the original event. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is that sort of what you're talking about when you're saying the, the first arrow and the second arrow? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So, and and the problem with, with that second arrow or with the suffering about the suffering is that, you know, like I was describing with the Russian doll situation, it's limitless in how much it could grow, right? Yeah. It, it's all, it can just keep expanding because you, your mind just likes to tell stories all day and just make stuff up. So it's just going to keep on churning, <laughs> you know, unless we redirect it or like drop the thought or something like it's just going to keep on being like, yeah, and who else was there? You know, and <laughs> who else heard that, you know, and when am I going to see them next? And like, you know, like, we're just going to keep going with that. You know, yeah. it's like, it's yeah. It's a festering little thing. mold just keeps growing. You know? Yes. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. So it, it can get worse and worse and worse to the point where sometimes 
it was almost like a game of telephone. Like you don't even remember the original thing like at all accurately or <laughs> like it, if you, you know, had a recording of the, the event and you could just play and watch it now, you'd probably be like, oh, huh. Like I wasn't as bad as I thought, you know, mm. or like it, it just gets so built up in our minds, mm. you know, and we sort of, it becomes like, um, those movies with the funhouse mirrors, you know, where like things <laughs> get really distorted, you know, like oh, yeah. that stuff gets big and scary. It's like, wah, wah. <laughs> you know, Oof. Yeah. 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 Great. So it's not just me. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Not at all. And that's what's good. Here's, I'll give you the upshot, right? The, or the good, right? What's good is that's the most workable part. And that causes so much of our suffering, yes. right? Like, we're all going to screw up at a party or whatever, mm. like at some point in our life, you know, that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is what we do to ourselves afterwards. And we have more control over that part because it's all between our ears. So that's like the mercy of the whole thing. Yes. <laughs> you mm. know, is mm. that there is hope that we can do that work. Yes. Mm. And that's uh, a nice segue into, into the question of how, how do you apply that knowledge in, in your life when you have had a, a stuff up of some sort or said an embarrassing comment? What, what, you know, what are the, some of the skills that you use that might help with those situations when you do find yourself in, in, in moments of struggle and, and you realize your mind is doing all these simulations that are getting you know, fractals of exponentially messier? <laughs> and what do, what do you do with that? <laughs> Ooh, when you put it that way, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I I'm thinking of a, like a specific experience I had a few years ago where I gave a talk and I was sick and I just felt like that went really badly. And I was like, oh man, like that just went really bad. And like you, Mike, like even now when I think about it, I'm just like, oh, ouch, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like yikes. Um, so, and every once in a while, it still comes up in my mind, like, oof. <laughs> You know, but I think for me, I mean, there's a, a number of different ways I cope in general, but in, in, a, in a specific circumstance like that, you know, it's, it's I use a lot of self-coaching and self-talk, you know, to sort of help with perspective taking, you know, to kind of remind myself like, okay, Kate, like friendly voice, self-compassionate, kind voice, right? Like, okay, Kate, like chances are it's not as bad as you thought, <laughs> you know, always feels worse on the inside than on the outside, you know, like just little reminders I can give myself, you know, there's, there's been some good things I've read in the past about public speaking and self-presentation. Like people don't remember the words you say, they just kind of remember the vibe, you know, that there's some quote about that too. You know, people don't necessarily remember the details of everything that are done. They just kind of remember whether it felt good or you seemed, mm -hmm. you know, like at all capable or whatever. So like nobody else remembers this as much as you do, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and as time has gone past, it's also like, oh, wait, I don't even really remember it anymore. I remember the feeling of it going bad, you know, and like, but I don't really remember what I said or why I ended up with that conclusion. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, okay, well, let's see. I vaguely like let myself be interrupted with questions that sort of derailed me. Okay. That happened. Like I can kind of like talk myself through it a little bit. So there's a lot of self-coaching and self-talk, I think. And also like, like real perspective taking and self-compassionate sort of like no big deal. Like this happens to everyone. You know, this is part of life, common humanity. I have to say like one of the somehow um, areas of self-compassion, like when I take the little self-test, like somehow common humanity, like 
I've got that one down, you know, mm, like that mm. one really helps me a lot. You know, it's like, mm. I'm totally not alone in this, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. somebody somewhere has experienced exactly this and a lot worse. I've mm. experienced other people who've gone down in flames more than I just did, you know, and what did I feel compassion mm. for them? Yes. You know, like, Hey, they had a bad day. No big deal. Yeah, chances are somebody, if, if somebody did think I did a bad job, they would be compassionate towards me. If they weren't, what a jerk. that's the other thing it's like i envisioned this sort of judging audience and then i'm like what a bunch of jerks if they actually would think that way yeah you know so that also sort of helps (laughs) in a little humor i do find humor helpful yes yes It's, it's already coming up for me it's that again the way that you're trying to change the tone of your inner narrator totally yeah and the way that you're trying to change the language which is it yeah. it's a game changer, is it not? Because totally, totally, yeah. You know, once again, and ad nauseum, we say this every episode as well. But it's it's just a default that you would lean towards if you were talking to a friend who had the mm-hmm. same experience. Absolutely, and you would you would believe what you were mm-hmm. saying. There would be a conviction to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for drawing attention to that because. Gee whiz, that one can slip. You can, <laughs> you can. Yeah, absolutely. You can think, oh my, I've got it, but oh. No, yeah. The other thing I think that can go wrong is that, right, the tone of voice that you talk to yourself in your own mind can be really not so friendly. So being mindful of like the, I was talking recently and I came up with this metaphor that I really like, so I'll share it with you. I thought it was very clever. Um, you know how every once in a while you go to a restaurant and you walk by a table and you can tell a couple is fighting and you, you can just oh, yeah. kind of feel the vibe. Oh, and you're yeah. just like, oof, ouch. Like that happens in our head. Like it's like there's just a bad vibe in there. <laughs> yes. You know, it's just you're just kind of being mean to yourself, or there's just some little battle going on, you know, between mm. these different parts. And it there's not like words, it's just this feeling of mm. like, ooh, mm. oh, like, mm. ooh, I don't want to walk by that table or be in that room, you know, mm. it's just like cut the air with a knife kind of thing. Yes. So then that active effort of friendliness and kindness and care, you know, can that's totally a game changer. And then, and then the other piece I think is also to get it out of your head and in your body too, because this happens a lot. You know, I talk to clients a lot and and just people, you know, anyone really, it's a very difficult thing is that you try to change your self-talk by just changing the words in your head, but you don't stop to feel the new thought, you know, like, Mm. Hey, like, Mm. like, okay, let me take a moment and take that in. Like, let me feel in my body what it would be like if like nobody actually cared that I didn't have a good answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. And just be like, oh, what a freaking relief, you know? <laughs> so I, I think that it makes a big difference too. It's like, okay, let's just slow down. Okay, yeah. Because people say like, I try to tell myself I'm going to be okay. And it's like, but do you feel like you're going to be like, can you create that feeling state? Like, Hey, I'm going to be okay. Oh, something just relaxed, (laughs) you Mm, know? mm. Yeah. Yeah. That really speaks to me in terms of my experience of self-compassion practice was sometimes as I sort of had done it for a lot longer, my like tone of inner voice became a bit softer and kinder when I deliberately bring it on board. And sometimes the language, you know, wasn't necessarily so harsh and critical, but 
that walking past the table with a you know a couple having an argument yeah for sure if someone could have walked past my brain experience there was still that real <laughs> shamey nasty you're not good enough kind of feeling going on and and it took a while yeah, for me to identify yeah. that that ah oh, it's still it's still there and I need to be kind to myself when that that shows up again because mm-hmm. sometimes I don't have the yeah. language to work with it or don't even know where that feeling came from. But but there it is still and I'm human and it's going to impact me. So I better be nice to me today. And so that really speaks to me. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that's been helpful for me too because I don't always have that negative self-talk. Like I don't have the, thankfully, like the terrible like inner critic who's just like, you're no good, <laughs> you know, but I just get that feeling of like mm. negativity or just like a slight bad vibe kind of feeling like I was describing. And so those, those are the clues for me that I need to apply more compassion, you know, not because there's again, like some irate, <laughs> you know, angry judge in my brain, but because there's some kind of subtle bad vibe happening. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think for me, tone has been very underrated listeners to this podcast will know that I'm a recovering stoic and um, I'm just not sure that Marcus Aurelius had the softest tone. Um, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Can't really, you know, test that without a TARDIS or a DeLorean. There you go, Jad, pop culture. (laughs) We got one. (laughs) It's interesting because no one in the history of relaxing ever relaxed when the person is saying relax, you know, Exactly right. Seriously, so I had to think about my tone because I was I was taking on the words, but that's what that's kind of mm-hmm. how I was with relax, you know. And it was like, hang on, hang on, right? right, right. Just it's you know, imagine yeah. saying that to a six year old; they are not <laughs> going to relax. Totally. So tone yes. for me was a one that sort of really started to move the landscape in a mm-hmm. you know more couchy mm-hmm. so, towards a more couchy sort of a vibe. Um, Kate, yeah. I wonder. And I've posed this. I've posed this question to to people in in with experience and position such as yourself. Um, what do you think? Hypothetical time. What do you think the landscape or the outcomes for mental health, well wellness, well being would be if these foundational skills of self compassion were more widely distributed. Meaning, uh, like culturally, societally, if those anything you want to take, kiddo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm yeah. sort of. I sort of sometimes wonder how I'm supposed to drill down more. I, you know, how how a society, how that, how however we're measuring the outcomes of wellness, mm-hmm. mental wellness would mm-hmm. would look if if these skills uh-huh. were, for example, perhaps taught as widely as language and you know literacy and numeracy in schools and stuff. I wonder. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, one thing that comes up that would probably be one of the starkest differences is the presence of empathy and compassion, because I see that as really so profoundly lacking. So I don't know if that's a chicken and the egg kind of answer or not, but I feel like if we're looking at outcomes, like people's capacity to be capacity to be nice to each other or kind to each other, that would be pretty cool. Yes. <laughs> um. I, yeah. So, and I don't see a lot of that. And in particular, empathy and caring for people different than you, 
so that you can have enough of an open mind. Because I think, you know, people's minds get closed when they develop this kind of rigid way of relating to themselves and a rigidity around their own experience, which then they kind of impose on other people. Mm -hmm. Um, They figured out some way to control their experience in their life to be quote acceptable because they got some toxic messages from the world about how you need to earn love or like how to be acceptable as a human being or whatever. Like they, they took on these harsh messages and figured out the box they needed to sit in, you know, to kind of get what they felt they needed. And now they're trying to force everyone else into the same boxes. No, you know, so I feel like there'd just be a lot more freedom and relaxation with people's own well-being, like their own kind of self-expression or individuality, like a sense of safety to just be truly oneself. Um, and, and also more respect for each other and people who are different, more of a sense of, um, yeah, like freedom and flexibility around human diversity. Reductive statement, but what I'm hearing is there would be the potential for less judgment of self and others. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes makes me curious what a society would look like. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of reverse engineering it to like, okay, where do things go wrong? (laughs) You know? And so I'm like looking back and thinking about, you know, sort of the way that I tend to approach things is, is looking at, well, what's our learning history? How did we grow up? What were we taught to believe Mm. about ourselves? What were we taught to believe about other people? What were we taught to believe about the world? Right. Those are kind of like broad categories commonly, you know, discussed in sort of psychology when you're conceptualizing like, you know, somebody's struggles, you know, and and they could, they could have been taught that directly, like your parents saying, Hey, you're no good. (laughs) Or they could have been taught that indirectly by modeling or just by being ignored or neglected, those sorts of things. Um, so, so then we get all these sort of toxic messages and beliefs, like I'm no good. I'm unworthy. Other people are selfish. Other people aren't going to protect me. Uh, Mm. the world is unsafe. You know, the world is dog eat dog, every man for himself, those kinds of beliefs that people internalize and then God help the society (laughs) with all of us walking around with those assumptions, you know? So people earlier on had different lessons that they learned, like, Hey, maybe I'm fundamentally worthy of love just because I'm a human being, or like I have basic human dignity. I have basic human rights as a, as a being on this planet, just as much as like a tree or a squirrel or whatever. Like I'm just have some fundamental dignity, you know, like, Whoa, (laughs) Mm. like, Mm. I feel like that would change the world. Mm. I feel like the role of good therapeutic process has a lot of parallels with mindfulness, mindful self-compassion, Buddhism in that, and I mentioned this Mm -hmm. on your wonderful podcast, Kate, is the idea to compassionately prosecute absurdity. So the Mm -hmm, idea of of, of sitting with a therapist, you know, whatever time frame, but eventually being able to understand that our thoughts or behaviors are maladaptive is one word, silly, not useful is another word. But, mm-hmm. you know, as, as a Western culture, we cruise around with this stern belief that our thoughts are truth and our thoughts are real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like that's the role of, of these process in, in terms of good execution, mm-hmm. where we're trying to get to, we're, yeah, right, we're trying right. to prosecute absurdities because, I'm Mm -hmm. guessing, I don't know, but the word that I'm looking at these days is, you know, as as a sociologist, I'm looking at 
normalization. I think normalization is really, mm-hmm. really tricky and interesting. And I realized with my own mindful self-compassion practice and mindfulness practice that I wasn't able to identify a lot or prosecute a lot of, lot of absurdities, Kate King, because I'd normalized them. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just like the fish in the water. It's the water you swim in. Yes. And mm. I couldn't tell myself from the water and or being a fish. No, I can't make that analogy work. But it's one of those things <laughs> where, you know, you kind of realize, you know, I'm always curious as a therapist, is there some small mm-hmm. part of you when a client walks in that you just want to say, hey, you've just got a rancid internal dialogue. Of course, you're not going <laughs> to feel mentally well. Of course, you're not going to feel okay. Just stop doing that. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> Swipe your credit card on the way out and turn right. blue. Yeah. It reminds me of what my dad says. He's like, I don't know how you do what you do. Like, don't you just get tired of hearing people complain? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly what my dad says to me. He's like, I don't understand how you do this. Yeah. And I'm like, it's it's a little more complicated. I mean, I'm like, it's called boundaries, dad. (laughs) I recommend, can I recommend them? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, I don't feel that way. I I, I feel that's just maybe his boundaries, too, is just like and also, yes, like, of course, we have the toxic, you know, patterns in our head and, and habits of thinking that cause us a lot of suffering. But man, those were honestly arrived at by like a well-intended part of ourselves that was trying so hard to adapt to the world and get it, get their needs met, you know? Yeah. yeah. So it's just like, whoo, like whatever's going on there like that. That's just to me evidence of how much you had to fight or try to get your needs met, and and this part that's just sort of been like, I guess this is what we what we have to do. Like we have to just beat ourselves into submission, you know, and constantly be vigilantly judging ourselves for any potential like error or you know whatever it might be, so that we can be acceptable. Oh, I just feel a lot of compassion for that. So why why do you think we normalize it though? Because we do, we seem to normalize it. We, we can't see the woods for the trees. It's a, right. why, why do you reckon we normalize it? Well, when I think of the word normal, I think of like what makes something normal and like something that's normal is common or typical. And unfortunately Familiar. what we're talking about is, is extremely common, you know? <sighs> so it's, it's if we talk to our friends, if we talk to family members, it's more common than not that we're talking to people who do the same things to themselves. So we don't often, I mean, that's, there's obviously exceptions, but many of us don't have great role models, you know, or don't see it, especially because people don't walk around talking about their self-talk, <laughs> maybe a little more now, but, you know, um, we, we tend not to hear it. We only hear what sort of comes out of people, you know, from the outside. And um, a lot of it's very toxic. So it, I mean, I, I'm thinking it's it's normal. It's not like helpful, but it's mm. normal in the sense of typical or common. I mean, it's just pervasive in our society that we're just like so awful to ourselves. <laughs> yeah. How's that for a quotable moment? Dude, I love that. <laughs> it's all terrible to We ourselves. suck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But because we're trying to be lovable, I mean, just I have to add that, like we're mm, trying so mm. hard, man, you know? Yeah, we really are. Yeah. I'm a, ever the fan of Marshall Rosenberg's work in terms of viewing things as tragic expressions of unmet needs. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, it allowed me to work in a prison as long as I did. It's just, I'm not going to personalize stuff because this, this human being is operating in the world with the skill sets that they have. Right. That to me uh, is, is an interesting idea. Your relationship to suffering, your Mm -hmm. relationship to that idea, I'm guessing, and I'm curious, has that shifted over the time with your with your practices that you've mentioned? Yeah, it has. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I was thinking about this since I knew we were going to be talking about suffering. <laughs> and I was thinking about like, you know, my my first encounter, my first memory of encountering not suffering, but the idea of suffering (laughs) was actually like I was saying in high school when I first started learning about Buddhism. And I remember, like, I think I still have the book, maybe even in that bookcase, that one, (laughs) Um, you know, the first noble truth that life is characterized by suffering. And I remember reading it and being like, oh, thank God, like, it's not just me. You know, <laughs> like it was such a moment of common humanity for me. I mean, I use that language now, like from self-compassion, but just to see that mirrored in a text, that's just like, no, like, that's just how it is. Like, that's how life is. Yeah. Like, it was just so liberating, you know? Uh, and f- from there though, obviously, you know, I was like, okay, right. But second, third and fourth noble truth, like we're going to get to the other side of the suffering and I'm going to get enlightened, man. You know? <laughs> so I think there was a kind of like aggressive self-personal development, like, um, like a real sort of working really hard to like, I'm going to overcome that. Like, I know life is, you know, suffering or whatever, but not me. I'm going to, you know, become one of those enlightened people. Um, so I think I, there, there, there was a journey and sort of being like, oh, no way, it doesn't matter. <laughs> still going to suffer. Still going to mm. at least have pain. Still going to have that first arrow at least, you know, mm. second arrow, a little more control some of the time. Yeah. So what I'm hearing there is there was an element mm. of striving in terms of. Striving is a good word. Yeah. This is the noble yeah. truth. Excellent. Let's fly through the rest of them. And I <laughs> exactly. Let's see. Okay. The way is the eightfold path. Okay. Right. Livelihood check. Like right speech check. Right, you know, just like bang out the, you know, I love a good checklist. <laughs> Can I figure this out? You know? Um, so yeah. And yeah, lots of therapy, lots of yoga. I lived at a yoga center for a little while after college and, you know, lots and lots of self-help books and therapy and stuff. And it's good. I mean, it's, the personal development was invaluable. I wouldn't really trade it for the world, but that attitude of striving, I think is something that I've learned to let go of over time, you know, and, and have more acceptance that like, no way, it's still, there's still gonna be times you hurt, you know, it's still gonna have that whole first noble truth thing. It's like, it doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't have life if there wasn't suffering. <laughs> Package deal. One of the, you know, one of the things that the Buddha observed when he exited the the palace when he was younger was was the was old age and i'm really interested in your uh studies into gerontology and um the exploration Mm -hmm. of things like reminiscence with you know creative writing and narrative therapy Mm -hmm. can you speak a bit about that that the fact that we're all going to get old and potentially sick and we're all going to die and and how you approach that sort of work with um the demographic of people you work with Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Big, big question. Let me see what I can tackle there. Um, Maybe stepping back, I think part of what drew me to 
my interest in gerontology and working with older adults is, you know, I, sometimes I joke, I'm like, basically I do sickness, old age and death. Like that's my gig, <laughs> you know, so, hey, hey, that's, a, that's, like, that's a my specialty. That's a consistent market. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and of course, you know, as, uh, which we don't like to think about, but sickness and death can happen yeah. at all ages. So I do also work with younger people who are dealing with chronic illness and stuff like that too. Um, or folks who are dealing with grief, you know, across the lifespan and coping with loss and mortality and stuff. And, and that's those existential issues and the meaning, the issues of meaning that come up in the issues of identity that show up around that stuff. I just find really personally rich and engaging. Um, so I just find I get quite a lot out of that work. Um, I also, you know, had some deaths in my family when I was younger that I think started some like existential questioning at a younger age, like, oh, wait, like people die. Oh, <laughs> you know, and I was not satisfied with the stories that were being told to me, religious upbringing about what that meant. So that sort of started my quest and finding meaning and finding my way towards, you know, other traditions and spirituality and making some of my own idiocratic sense of what it all means. <laughs> um, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but yeah, there's something personally rich and meaningful about it. Reminiscence is interesting. It's not a great word, but it is a word that's used in literature. You know, I like mm -hmm. to think about like just like narratives, like personal narratives and the story we tell ourselves about who we are uh, and the kind of story of our identity. And for me, you know, I can't help but sort of bring the Buddhist lens of non-self and, and that kind of stuff into that, thinking about how we we construct ourselves through the stories we tell about ourselves. Mm. Um, and so when we get into our older years, uh, you know, quite a lot of our well-being is influenced by what the story is that we're telling ourselves or have been telling ourselves for a long time. Um, you know, so, and some of those stories started when we were very young, right? So you might have a story that's like, I'm no good, right? Or I'm unlovable, or I have to work hard to earn love, you know, by being good to everyone else or something like that. And fast forward like 70 years, you know, and that can take quite a toll on a person. Um, but if the person is motivated and, and willing to rethink that story, you know, to sort of take those puzzle pieces apart, <laughs> see mm. if they fit together a different way, you know, that we can construct a different story, you know, of your life and what it's meant, you know, people also get stuck thinking like life is meaningless because they're not, you know, working anymore, their kids are grown, you know, or they're sick and they can't do the things they used to do. Uh, so helping people to find a more flexible approach to what it means to be well, and a more flexible way of kind of relating to the world now that certain roles are transformed or no longer available. Um, I just find that to be like very rich work and very personally, like a sort of selfishly, I get a lot out of doing it myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is interesting to me though, and I'm going to use a really clumsy term and I hope that it's not offensive to any sensibilities, but there is that idea that, that it's more difficult to teach an older dog new tricks. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I just flag not that. when the dog is motivated. <laughs> okay, this is interesting because I wonder. I wonder if it's a part of in in, in Australia, um, in the in the sort of the Westernized cultural in, you know, influences mm -hmm. in Australia. There's mm -hmm. we kind of throw away our elderly a lot. We 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 tend totally. to yeah. mm -hmm. we tend to kind of think that there's no use there. I wonder. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it moves. Uh, in an adjacent pathway towards our aversion towards the concept of aging and death. I'm curious about mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
I, I'm thinking, yeah, but I'm thinking what a rich landscape that would would be to work in. Um, having having yeah. sat with and watched my father pass, um, mm-hmm. within that pain and that difficulty, it becomes a very BS free zone. There totally. seems to be the mm. landscape of even if it is just, dude, I haven't got a lot of time here, so don't bore us. Get to the chorus. Um, it's a <laughs> it's a fascinating, you know, space. Um, yeah. What do you? What is your biggest? What's one of your biggest learnings from working in that landscape? I'm wondering. Um, I cherish life. I think cherishing the capacities that I have and, and the beauty there is to enjoy and the relationships that, that one can enjoy and, you know, to, to get out of striving and into living in the moment and savoring and cherishing it. I remember during some of my training, I worked in hospice settings and like when you're sitting with somebody who's dying and you're looking out the window and you're thinking this person is never going to go outside again. Like they're probably going to die in the next 12 to 24 hours. Then I go outside and I walk through the grass. That's a very different experience of walking through the grass, Mm. you know, and that really stays with you. So a kind of a gratitude practice. Yeah. It's like a gratitude. I think it's like a savoring and a cherishing too. Mm. Yeah. Which they're all related. You know, I tend to, I find the word like cherishing or savoring more relatable to my experience because gratitude Mm. to me implies gratitude. Like I'm grateful to someone or I don't know. I find the word a little weird Mm. appreciation, savoring works more for me, but basically, yeah, that. (laughs) Wow. That's a rich, a rich takeaway. And it mirrors some of my own experience. People used to say, how can you work in these spaces where you do? And it's like, because when I work with incarcerated kids, I, I value the capacity that I walk, I can walk freely. I have right, choice. Right. I have agency for, for want of a better, mm-hmm. better term. Continuing my ever curious nature. Did you feel a calling? Cause I mean, it's a special, it's a, tr- it's a specialist field in a way. Is it not like, mm-hmm. yeah. Did you feel a calling <clears throat> to that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As best as I can describe. I mean, this is like, you know, they always ask you this question on interviews. So tell me, why are you interested in working with older adults? And I'm like, you know, how personal do you want to get? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. With a blazer on. <laughs> but, you know, as I had said, I had, I had had some series of losses in my extended family when I was coming of age that was influential in terms of thinking about mortality. Of Mm. course, I was of, I was the kind of kid who would think about that. So I was already a little weird. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You're straight Uh, out of the Maybe have to, we maybe have to, (laughs) we might have to rewind further to really get the answer to that. I mean, I did grow up with, you know, several older adults in in my family, you know, like my mother's parents and another older aunt who would always come for the holidays. So it's kind of around older adults. We weren't super close. Um, And so people often think like, oh, you must've been so close to your grandparents or something. I'm like, "Mm." I mean, yeah, but no, like it wasn't like a special bond. Like some people Mm. just assume that like that 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 must've been the case. But I, you know, there's this other thing that I think that maybe because of some of those early relationships and experiences I had is that I do feel a longing for intergenerational connection and like what you were describing about throwing away older adults, you know, and that there's a sense of um, 
like age segregation that happens that people who are, you know, over a certain age are only supposed to be around each other and hang out with themselves. <laughs> and it's so destructive to society and, and community and family. And I just think, I, I think that all of us really on some level, you know, want to be embedded in some kind of social context that includes multiple generations. I think that's just as our sort of social tribal kind of animals, <laughs> you know, we, that's how we were made. We, we lived in, you know, small communities that, that included all generations. And so to be aware of and sense the absence of that feels like going back to something that's very natural and normal rather than like, okay, it's weird. Cause she wants that. <laughs> you know, mm, I think it's just, mm. we're so out of touch with that. Wonderful because they uh, bring together people across generations in a way that your peers, and this is the other problem is that oftentimes generate people across generations aren't peers or equals, right? There's always this sort of like hidden power differential. Mm. Um, and when you can relate to people across generations as peers, as friends, as colleagues, then I just think that's a really beautiful and meaningful thing. Yeah, a fellowship, um, a meaningful yeah. fellowship. And it's interesting, isn't it? It's always been a strange thing to me. I love I love the idea of someone who can see further down the road than you because simply mm -hmm. because they've been further down the road than you. Um, right. I think there's parallels again to common humanity. Mm -hmm. I think it's it it it's strange. It's it's almost like you're not utilizing really important assets. Mm-hmm. Even if it's just as basic a, a, as as having someone who's gone and made all the stuff ups first. So if you spend time and learn from them, you, you potentially don't have to make as many yourself. That's a very selfish attitude, right. but it seems I, yeah. really useful. <laughs> yeah. I remember you mentioned mentorship when we talked on Noble oh, Mind a little bit. And I yes. remember being like, I want to go down that road a little bit more because that's been hugely meaningful to me in my life and, you know, personally and professionally, Absolutely. you know, to feel like there are people who care about me, who, you know, are sort of a generation older, who, you know, are looking after me or just inclined to check in with me and wonder how I'm doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, again, it feels good. And, and it feels like, again, it just feels like very natural. And there's a gentle wisdom to it in some ways as mm -hmm. well. Like an older person sort of saying, listen, dude, um, pulling me aside even and saying, Hey buddy, um, you might want to take note of this. I've always found mm -hmm. less, far less abrasive <laughs> than someone of my own yeah. age, because mm -hmm. there is right. a natural, there's a natural inclination to kowtow in, in me of just going, yeah, man, you, you've been down the road further than me, please. If you're seeing, if you see something that I'm clearly not, um, why would mm -hmm. I, why would I not have a mentor kind of go, Hey dude, you know, you, you might right, want to consider yeah. this. I think it's um, yeah. it's really it's it's quite absent. Um, in in this and another passion that that Jad and I have been trying to sort of work towards is working in that landscape of men, or the whatever whatever that means, by the way. But the 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 thing that seems to be in this country, particularly in this in this state, um, is that men do not seem to be able to access self-compassion um, as much. And even if that is just by the metrics, you know, we've taught all these classes and we bloody never get men in there. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting idea. And I wonder too, if that's a, if that's a process 
that's driven by the absence of mentoring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I would have loved to have an older guy sort of pull me over earlier and go, hey, it's okay to be kind to yourself. It's okay to be. Totally. You know, um, so, I yeah. mean, that that for me is mentoring in a, in, in a nutshell. I mean, I'm curious, Jad, mm-hmm. I know that you and I have talked about this. Mm. What What are your thoughts? Well, I was just thinking back to um, the episode we did with Claire Dunn and she talked about this this lack in our culture compared to, say, traditional or hunter-gatherer cultures of, of initiation and that we don't have a process of initiation in, into elderhood or adulthood. It's mm-hmm. kind of like you have your 21st, you get married, you graduate, and it's all like kind of condensed into just two decades of your life really and the rest of it is just kind of chronological things to tick off your 40th your 50th your 60th etc and yeah i i certainly in my life found that, that that there was this yearning and active searching for for male role models who who um yeah who could pass on that sort of wisdom and i think a, a big part of the problem is that because men are taught to in many ways shut down a lot of emotions if you if you can't tune into your own emotional experience, how the hell are you going to tune into to other people's emotional experiences? And, and an observation I found in the men who have done the self compassion course is, it actually opens them up to a huge amount of guilt, because as they feel into their own pain, they start to recognise, oh, I've inflicted so much pain on some of the people around me by just shutting down, tuning out, uh, diminishing, dismissing their emotional sort of experience. Um, so I've sort of gone on a bit of a tangent there, but yeah, I think it's, it's something that really needs to be explored in a a lot more depth culturally, not just for men, but for women too, is this concept of, um, elders and, and, um, the wisdom that comes with age. And I love what you said about intergenerational stuff, because, you know, we go to school and we're just with our year level, you know, we're with people who are only different by one year and then uni is much the same. And then you go into the workforce and it's sort of a concentration of maybe two decades around you, generally speaking, and often less than that. And yeah, we don't have that access to, to wisdom. And it's, it's even a bit dismissed. I'm thinking my younger brother is working in a job at the moment and he's very enthusiastic and full of all of the knowledge of uni. And he gets a bit frustrated with some of the old dinosaurs that he's working with. And I can just only imagine how precocious he sounds at times, but (laughs) Um, and he is, he's very, very smart. If he's, if he's listening, I love you dearly, but he, you know, I can see why he would butt heads because culturally, I don't think we have this sense in our, in our culture anyway, of, of wisdom and of the wisdom of experience versus just data and knowledge. Yeah. I'll just add a, a twist on that, which is particularly in my work doing therapy with older adults who are suffering and struggling quite a bit. Um, And also this is supported by some research as well, is that uh, wisdom is not guaranteed to come with age, nor is somebody guaranteed to be wise by virtue of their odometer, (laughs) their life odometer having (laughs) turned over a certain uh, number. (laughs) uh, uh. And we, you know, at whatever life stage we might be and have our own unique lived experience. And we also have important things to offer and share with people across generations as well. Um, So thinking about, again, like this idea of having peer relationships with people, you know, across age, 
across mm. decades, you know, that you could, you know, have mutual respect for each other's offerings in a relationship. Um, not that there isn't a space and a need for mentorship. I'm a hundred percent behind that. Um, but, but to also think like, it doesn't, there doesn't always have to be this kind of like, you know, stepwise thing where like the older generation has to look over the younger generation who's taking care of the baby generation, <laughs> you know, like that's very constructed, you know, I mean, some, it, it just feels like we could be maybe a little more fluid and mutualistic and that would probably serve us all a little better if we didn't all, like if people, I think sometimes people feel like if they have to be deferential and offer respect always, mm, you know, mm, or if mm. older adults in their lives demand that, you know, um, then that creates like this power hierarchy that creates distance and disconnection. Mm, 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 mm. I think that those are some very, very wise words, Kate King. I think I like to, I like to, as, as you've noticed in our previous discussions, um, I like to think about thinking. I think it's just valuable. Mm -hmm. I like mm -hmm. to watch people at different stages of their life thinking about their thinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want to say you can learn from the fools and the sages. I don't want to get too Taoist here. Um, also a recovering Taoist, but I think when we look with compassion and we look at a peer level, we can somewhat be reductive and in a useful way and say that these are skill sets that we're talking about that help us perhaps mm -hmm. to examine our thinking or to think about our thinking. Right. Within that landscape is the capacity for change. Change may well, positive change may in fact manifest. Uh, mm -hmm. It's probably more likely to. But yes, it's a very valuable thing. And I'll, I'll actually take away that, that pearl of wisdom, Kate. It's an interesting <laughs> idea to say that someone can advance through all their life. And yes, they're, they're more chronologically advanced than you. They're older. However, they haven't thought about their thinking or they haven't mm -hmm. applied skill sets and can still be Oh, this is not a clinical word, but they can still be kind of a dick or enact uh, <laughs> dick-like behaviors into the world. Yeah. Likewise, Absolutely. likewise, you can have per person B who's sort of built a life around safely prosecuting um, absurdity, thinking mm -hmm. about their thinking, thinking about their accountability and blah, 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 mm -hmm. all those things. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's really, it's a really interesting point that you make there. I wonder, yeah, it's almost to me, there's a, there's a model A and there's a model B. Um, and mm. I want to continue to think about my thinking and I want to continue to have safe discussions like this. Um, I want to continue to connect um, with, with wonderful individuals such as yourself uh, and, and Alex, um, your, uh, your partner in crime on the, on the Noble Mind podcast. <laughs> Do you think discussions like this are becoming more prevalent do you think we're creating landscapes for more safe discussion about thinking about our thinking or thinking about our how we experience life? I do. Yeah. And I think I can say, you know, although I don't necessarily, I haven't necessarily seen a representative sample of older generations. <laughs> um, I have sat with a lot of people from older generations because uh, I've been working with older adults for a couple of decades now. So, um, mm. and I can confidently say that the sort of discourse we have in the public sphere now is much more psychologically minded 
than the discourse in the public sphere when people were coming of age in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. I mean, that's not just my opinion. That's, you know, again, sort of a history of psychology, sort of facts like the psychological revolution, 20th century. Like there's been a big shift in people's sort of understanding of their own sort of mental and emotional processes. It's much more normal to talk about it. Um, I mean, just open any magazine or, or I don't know, that's old fashioned. Go to a website. <laughs> um, those listening under 20, you can Google what a magazine is. A magazine is, or was. is a paper. <laughs> but like, I mean, I, I was like flipping through a paper magazine the other day because I had a subscription to one and then that one went kaput because that's the way they're all going. And then they gave me a new subscription to another magazine. And now that one's going all virtual and whatever. But you just open it up and it's not a self-compassion magazine, just like a health magazine. And there's just article after article about like the benefits of self-compassion. And look, they're quoting Chris Neff and like, oh, look here, like here's some something about how to be more creative. And like, you know, have you thought about your self-talk? And it's just the discourse, you know, it's just so mainstream and simplified, simplified, watered down, misunderstood, distorted, whatever. But at least, you know, that conversation will get more sophisticated over time. At least the words are out, <laughs> you know. So I, I see many signs of hope for things going in a better direction. I do, I do find myself default, defaulting, regardless yeah. of what's currently going on, um, mm -hmm. to a more opt position of optimism based around, mm -hmm. yeah, safe conversations, wider discussions, the applications of such wonderful wisdom traditions and skill sets. Um, and look, you know, hopefully that's, we, we can all be part of that. Even just having discussions like this, I find, you know, I'm a geek for it. Obviously I find it super useful. I'd much rather talk about this mm -hmm. than the weather. <laughs> it's an interesting landscape to, to exchange, to exchange ideas. Yeah. Well, and people who don't get to have those conversations in their life, cause they're isolated, don't have people in their world who are like, they can put, turn on podcasts and listen in on it in conversations, I hope. Yes. <laughs> um, for listen, you know, and so ideas spread, you know, for better or worse, quite rapidly. Um, and people can find, you know, get exposed to all kinds of things. Now um, I'm not saying this in a way to suggest that there isn't, there aren't, you know, serious dark clouds on the horizon, <laughs> you know, in terms of yeah. like, you know, yeah. the, the influence of consumerism and dictatorship and fascism and like all that stuff is real too, um, and happening and scary. But if we're talking about like how has psychology, you know, been disseminated in the world, I think that, you know, there have been some downsides, but we're headed in a better direction in terms of understanding our inner lives better. Absolutely. I would concur. And look, it sounds like yeah. we're beginning to steer this crazy bus home. I was curious about your other podcast, Kate. Yeah, you could just say it's it I had it was once a podcast. Now it's just becoming a actually an app is what I'm developing in a book by the same title. Uh, it's called The Well Helper. It's fascinating to me. Are you are you um mm -hmm. are you combating uh empathy fatigue on a united front there? Kate King, is that what you're doing? <laughs> yeah. So one thing that I have lived personally and seen around me, both in mental health professionals, as well as other healthcare professionals, even before the pandemic, is that we have some serious structural problems in healthcare and mental health. And people are getting burned out like crazy, compassion fatigue, like crazy, being asked to do absurd things, volumes of hours that are just unthinkable yes. and so on. Um, and 
and so I believe strongly we need to change things at the structural level, and that's going to take time and a lot of people who you know have the bandwidth to do that work. <laughs> yes. And to be able to do that work, we need to also be able to take care of ourselves. Um, so I've developed the Well Helper. It's a, 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 right now an app in development that will have courses on the app uh, for self-compassion, first aid for emotional well-being. Wow. Uh, little guided practices people can listen to, short guided practices you can listen to on the drive home. You can listen to after a crappy encounter with somebody, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> PRN audio basically that you can listen to like in hard moments when you need a little coaching or, or to be talked down from the ledge. Um, and people can track their well being as well and, and just kind of take care of themselves and start to learn new skills uh, in a context of, you know, other helping professionals. Professionals. So I'm being interdisciplinary because I feel like there's much more that unites us than divides us in terms of um, the ways in which a lot of us in helping professions, again, broadly understood, including educators and, and first responders and other folks. Um, a lot of us are helpers and givers and doers, and we've taught certain, been taught certain ways of relating to the world and other people, often going back to our childhood that have led us into these roles. Um, there's a lot to work on there, on ourselves. Um, to improve how we can care for others, but also just because we inherently deserve <laughs> our own experience of wellness in the world. Uh, so sometimes people say like, take care of yourself so you can take care of other people. I mean, that's true. If that's the doorway to get you in. Yes, that's mm. true. <laughs> also like take care of yourself because you have inherent worth and dignity and deserve to be yes. cared for. Yeah. yeah. That's, <laughs> and it's a nice thing to do. It's a nice thing to help those who help. Yes, exactly. Openly applaud that. That's yeah. uh, that yeah. is wonderful. And we okay. harm people when we don't take care of ourselves, just as kind of like underline that, like I've seen the damage done, mm. you know, by healthcare mm. workers and mental health professionals oh. you know, when we don't take care of ourselves and we hurt other people, you know, we've got to get it together, man. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So this is my, my, uh, my, offering to the world to try to improve that there's free stuff you know there'll be some added courses and workshops people can add on and pay for as well but the wellhelper.com is where folks can learn about that outstanding fantastic <clears throat> dr kate where can where can people find you and find out more info about what you do and um, your podcast and your app and i mean it feels like you do millions of different wonderful things and i'm sure lots of listeners will be really keen to find out more about what you have to offer the world yeah, so the the sort of central home base is my personal website, which is drkateking.com. And that has a little bit of everything I do. So it's got little announcements about Noble Minds, got stuff about Well Helper, other stuff I do that's unrelated to all that. <laughs> um, so that's where people can go and just kind of get to know me and see what I'm up to and where I've been lately. Um, and then the Noble Mind podcast is noblemindpodcast.com. That's a podcast that's exploring Buddhism and med meditation and psychology and trying to build bridges between those disciplines um, so that folks can be informed. Um, practitioners can learn from scholars, scholars can learn from practitioners and so on. Um, and then the wellhelper.com, which I just mentioned for the helping professionals work. I feel lazy. <laughs> oh man, I gotta get it together. <laughs> I don't do it all myself. <laughs> I'm well supported. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. So you have minions. That's what I need. I need minions. I get it. I see a message taken. <laughs> Well, yeah. thank you very warmly, kindly, and compassionately, Dr. Kate, for coming on the show. It's been a really interesting discussion, one we hope to to perhaps have more of in the future yeah. with you and, and your co-host of the Noble Mind podcast. 
Um, mm-hmm. Thank you for your time and for, for your talking across time zones, even though I didn't quite mm-hmm. get the memo this morning. It's gotten dark while um, we were talking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and thank you so much for all of the information and wonderful work you share with the world. I'm sure lots of people are benefiting in ways, uh, yeah, you may not even know. So thanks again. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, You can find us on Instagram and Facebook and please like and share and rate our our show if you enjoy it. And um, and we'll see you in another episode shortly. Thanks. Bye. Hey, toodles. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for having me.